Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs on business and personal growth tips. I'm your host, Eric Sue, and today we have Sahil Jane from AdStage. Sahil, how are you doing today? Good, man. How's it going? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. So why don't you give us a little background on yourself, and also do you want to throw in your age there as well? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'll start from the beginning. So I you know, grew up in Oregon, then I moved to Brazil, then I lived in you know, Texas for a year, finally came to California. I you know, had a very kind of what you'd say is like your stereotypical entrepreneur path. Um, so I ended up dropping out of high school when I was 17 uh, to join Yahoo. Um, then I did, you know, I was there for about a year and a half. I was on the Yahoo mobile team and I started off kind of as an engineer uh, doing Pearl, so nothing very sexy. Uh, then I went to um, UC Berkeley. I wanted to try out college, not for vocational training, but more to mature as an individual grow up. I studied philosophy and econ, um, did a couple of things, worked at a couple of internships while I was in, at Berkeley. Then the inevitable dropped at UC Berkeley when I was 19 at the end of my sophomore year to join uh, AOL, doing West Coast mergers and acquisitions. So I was kind of like sourcing the deals, bringing in new companies for us to meet. And that's actually how I encountered the whole startup world. And I was like, hold on a second. What am I doing on this side of the table? I should be on that side building businesses, not acquiring them. And so that's when I, um, I left AOL very quickly. And I founded my first company when I was 20. It was a Y Combinator and SV Angel company called Trigger.io which is a cross-platform app development framework. And then um, a little over a year and a half ago, I left Trigger after about two years um, to start uh, AdStage, which is my current company, and fundraise for AdStage in earnest. And so uh, I'm currently sitting at a very old age of 23, um, and so turning 24 in about five months. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's actually interesting, and I want to talk about this a little bit, you know, because in, in, in the Asian society, you know, you know all, all your parents want you to do is, 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 you know, do something stable. They don't want you to yeah. jump around too much. But you've jumped around from like big company to big company, and then you've done mergers and acquisitions. You've went to a great school, and then now you're running like another startup. It's like, you know, what do you have to say to people that 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 you know that are big supporters of stability? Yeah. Um, well, for my parents, so um, so when I dropped out of high school, which is kind of less heard of, um, you know, my mom definitely freaked out, and my dad was kind of like, wait a second. So my dad was also an entrepreneur. So it was actually, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a very good support structure, two amazing sisters, two great parents who have obviously given me the opportunity to do this. Um, and so my, uh, you know, my mom freaked out. And then you know, she, of course, like, still gives me calls to this day and says, hey, Sahil, you know, how are things going? Um, when are you going to go back to school and get that degree? <laughs> um, so, you know, so she is like your, you know, your typical cute little Asian mom. And so um, you know, she has that in her. But that's just because they've grown up that way. So I think that something that we need to realize is that this new era of like, you know, running companies right out of school or you know, leaving school to do things in this kind of high-tech world um, you know, granted, we had this like back in the dot-com boom, I guess, but it was still the dot-com boom was still a little bit more traditional. Like you'd go to MBA school and things like yep. that. This is just a new era, and with with new steps and new stages, I guess you know there are changes that we have to go through. And I, so I think what you know, I think the most beneficial things for folks who are focused on stability is, you know, one thing you have to realize there are different types of people in this world, and some really value stability and are a little bit more risk adverse, and some are more into it. Right, and that's totally fine. Both of those societies need to live together harmoniously, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. I think the second thing is just education. I think we need to have shows like your own right now. I think you need to have you know people need to go to events like the launch conference, which we're presenting at next week, um, and just kind of understand uh, how this world works. And that you know don't buy into the hype. The other big problem. So I go back to UC Berkeley every now and then, give a couple talks for God knows what reason. There's way more impressive people than myself, but. You know, the main thing that comes up is like, why'd you drop out? Should I drop out too? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. Like, you know, you don't just drop out just because it's a cool thing to do, right? In fact, it could be the wrong decision in a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, it's the, you know, you have to understand it. You have to really feel motivated about it. And you have to have the support structure. Without the support structure, it can be very difficult. 
Um, but, you know, granted, these are all generalities. I've mm-hmm. seen people who don't have the support structure and do phenomenally well. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I can kind of speak to that too because I didn't have the support structure to drop out so I had to finish college just for my parents because they're just like, you got to get the degree. It's just yep. you know, that way. So yep. no, I totally agree with that and, and it's not for everyone to just you know drop out or start yep. your own company. So it, it's really by a case-by-case basis but um, you know, r- really cool what you're doing. So why don't we give a little background on AdStage and, and how things are going right now, You know, revenue, um, employees, and, and number of users. Sure, sure. Um, so we started AdStage. I actually, you know, wanted to build AdStage uh, because it was solving a problem, a personal problem for me. So at my last company, uh, you know, we had a, maybe a really small ad budget, like three to five k per month, and I didn't know how to do any advertising online, especially. Mm-hmm. And so when I was learning it, I was, you know, all these new networks are available now, right? It's continuing to fragment. And so what I did was I had to experiment with Facebook, LinkedIn, Bing, Twitter, so on and so forth. And it became a pain in the ass very quickly to manage all these different networks kind of desperately, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's why I wanted to build a single place from which I could build, deploy, and manage campaigns across multiple ad networks. And now we're integrating all these other apps that are complementary to your online advertising efforts like Optimizely or Unbounce, you know, Getty Images to Source Images. So we set out to create this single platform solution, right? And uh, and that's what we've done. We actually just launched a new platform product, our full kind of platform product, just like four weeks ago. And previous to that, we had kind of launched a mini version of that, which allowed you to be a quick campaign builder, which you actually personally used. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was on stage at launch last year, where we actually won Best Business, which for an ad tech company to win at a consumer show is actually kind of interesting, yeah. right? That's very rare. Like ads is not the sexiest space that you necessarily mm-hmm. want to be in. And well, we fundamentally want to change that. So here we are today. We raised $1.5 million and change. Um, you know, over a year ago as our first round. And we actually, um, you know, we're, we're in the process right now of closing some more money. Um, so we'll have some really exciting things to share about that. Uh, not yet, but probably, you know, maybe even next week, who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're working on it. And it's mainly to grow the team. So our team is currently uh, 10 people, eight engineers, um, and we're looking to probably, you know, double or maybe a little bit more than double by the end of the year. So, yeah, that's the team, that's the company. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how uh, how about revenues and number of users? Sure. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting. We have over six thousand businesses signed up on our beta list, so on wow. our waiting list. Um, you know, for, we haven't yet gotten to all of them, so we invite about fifty businesses a day mm-hmm. into the private beta, and we get about sixty or seventy new signups every single week, and that's all organic. So we're going to talk about that later, right? The content mm-hmm. marketing piece mm-hmm. and things like that. And so, um, you know, not that we're bragging about it because I don't think it's a thing to brag about, but we haven't done any sales yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're getting all this through content marketing. It's a very low cost user acquisition, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it's good. I mean, so far we have out, we've sent out about maybe four hundred. Um, or so invites out of those 6,000, so we have a lot to get to, mm-hmm. and about 160 have redeemed, so well over 25% redemption rate, which is mm-hmm. great. And um, what's, you know, there's some pretty exciting stats that are, that are coming out now, so we have over $500,000 of ad budget going through our platform every day, mm-hmm. um, from, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. We have about 1,100 linked ad accounts to the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, just in January alone, which I think we were only launched for like two weeks in January, we had over $700,000 of ad spend go through AdStage. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's exciting. So, like, let, let's talk about pricing a little bit because, you know, with ad tech, I mean, pricing can always get a little interesting. So how do you guys charge? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, and it was certainly, like, not a simple process for us. Um, as you know, a lot of people historically in advertising technology and in, just in the ad world in general have done, like, uh, have basically done a percent spend model, right? Yeah. And so what they do is they, you know, they charge, you know, you spend $10,000 and they say, okay, at $10,000 spend, we're going to take 10% of it or 15% mm-hmm. or even some agencies are really brash and they can take up to like yeah. 25, 50% of your ad spend, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like I get it. Those are services businesses and that's why in order to have any kind of margin that makes sense, they have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we initially, at the very beginning of the company, we didn't know much about the ad tech world, to be honest. So we thought, okay, we'll just do a percent ad spend too. We'll mm-hmm. just make it really, really low. Yeah. Right? What we realized is there's some fundamental issues with the percent of ad spend, which <clears throat> in conclusion has led us to do a SaaS model, which mm-hmm. I'll talk about in a second. But the big issues, and we like to voice these issues, is think about it. For a percent spend model, ad spend isn't constant. Right? So what happens is that you don't actually know how much you're going to be spending every month. Your budget might be constant, even then probably not, mm-hmm. but it's never, your spend isn't constant. And so what happens is if you're charging a percent spend, the person buying the tool doesn't know how much they're paying for the tool. Mm-hmm. Right? So when they're asking for approval, when these are marketing managers who are using a the tool, they ask their boss for approval. The boss says, hey, how much, it is, how much is it? You say, hmm, I'm not sure. It's mm-hmm. going to be a portion of this amount of spend. We'll see if we actually spend that much. It's, a much more, it's not very transparent. Mm-hmm. Right? The other problem is that typically these percent models are very large, and so you have to get approval. And for us, we just want to do a land grab, right? So at the moment, we have a promotion running for our beta. So this Mm -hmm. is just for our beta. It's going to be for the next three to four months or so. It's $99 a month, down from $250 a month is what we expect it to become, Mm -hmm. right? And um, and the reason why, $99 a month is not going to create a multi-billion dollar business, Mm -hmm. right? Not at all. But what what we realize is, look, every single startup Changes, changes their pricing at least once in their history. It's almost guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to come up with random price tiers and really confuse everybody and be price prohibitive, mm-hmm. let's take advantage of that knowledge and just create something dead simple mm-hmm. and go for a land grab and work at a loss in the beginning. We're venture back. So mm-hmm. might as well leverage that, mm-hmm. right? And, and actually work at a loss for a bit. And mm-hmm. then over the next three months, we'll gain data. How are they using the product? Yep. What features are they using? When one person link, what we've learned now, it's actually a really interesting conclusion is when you add a, new, add a new user to ad stage, a lot of times they have more than one ad account for a given network. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like maybe single grain, you guys probably have like 10 Facebook accounts under your one main you know, one account. Yep. So maybe we charge by a per account right level kind of pricing. Mm-hmm. We're not sure yet. Yep. And so that's why we're buying ourselves time right now and really mm-hmm. figuring it out. And at $99 a month, no marketing manager needs to ask for approval. Yep, totally. And I think that's really smart. I mean, the, I think that per seat sound, sounds really compelling later. I mean, down the line when you have like a sales team or something like that. Yeah. Um, how about, um, you know, I've read in the past, you know, before we did this interview, you know, you've had investors like Paul Graham, you've had investors like Dave McClure. So mm-hmm. how does a 23 year old get these, you know, world class investors? Yeah. Um, so PG uh, through Y Combinator was an investor in my last company, not an ad stage. Mm-hmm. Um, in this company, we, you know, we do have a phenomenal set of investors. In fact, like I'm, you know, I feel a lot closer with them because I'm the CEO of this company. So it was, it was nice to foster those relationships, mm-hmm. which is super important. I think one kind of one thing I do want to mention in this conversation is for all the entrepreneurs out there, like don't just go for the big names. Mm-hmm. You know, be careful. Like by the way, the people who you mentioned, Dave McClure and Paul Graham, phenomenal people, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you get caught up in the vanity. Sometimes you get caught up in trying to get the big names. But at the end of the day, you need to look for people who are going to pick up your phone when you call. Mm-hmm. Right? They're not going to want to you know, put you on mute. They're going to hang out with you when you're having problems. Your investors are the most useful when things are going bad. Mm-hmm. Right? But also, that's when people's true colors come out. Yep. So if you have a board or things like that, things are all hunky-dory when you know, things are going well. But as soon as things go poorly, people, their claws come out. Mm-hmm. Right? And so those are things that I learned from my first company, I think, where we were really incentivized to go for these top names, but we didn't care so much if they were going to work well with us, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so at AdStage, we tried to change that. Um, the way that we went about it is uh, a couple of various techniques. There's no, like, true science here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some were through personal connections. I was in the M&A world previously, so I knew some of the, you know, I knew some of the investors before. Um, some were investors that I met at conferences. In fact, um, the Freestyle Capital guys are the guys who led our round. They're the most amazing investors I've ever worked with, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh and Dave Felser. Uh, well, Dave Samuel and Josh Felser. And um, they actually, I met them at launch. So not this launch, the, the la- or the last one actually, but the one before that, when Trigger, my last company, we were at launch. And I just 
casually had a good conversation with Dave. And one day when I wanted to do ad stage, I gave him a call, mm -hmm. right? So that's one way. Um, there's, it's also great to learn, you know, to meet through other entrepreneurs. So as you have, you know, you're kind of in that circle, I would ask you, hey, Eric, do you know anybody that I should maybe speak with or that would be interested in marketing technology, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then finally, AngelList was super helpful for us. So AngelList is the one tool that I can always kind of recommend. I think, I don't know, I haven't used it for fundraising in the last year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. But when we used it, um, you know, I've known Naval for a couple of years now and he kind of, you know, he's done a really good thing with that tool. Mm -hmm. And it allowed us to kind of, you know, get all of our, get the folks who recommend us. They may not put money in us, but really famous people or people who have some kind of pull in the industry can comment on our profile, yep, right? Yep. And that builds hype on the profile and who knows how their algorithm actually works, but we ended up becoming one of the AngelList featured companies. Mm -hmm. And so we were emailed out to like thousands of investors. Um, and because of that feature, we got a lot of inbound interest. And granted, we, didn't only, we only took like two investors from mm -hmm. AngelList, but at the end of the day, for better or for worse, the, um, the hype or the interest or the intrigue or, you know, piquing people's interest, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, helps in the process. And it helps you open doors to meet new people. Got it. So when you're at a big conference like launch, you know, not everyone's going to not everyone's going to have kind of let, let, let's just say you have some sort of cloud. You know, you've worked at these companies before and you've kind of had these connections. How does someone like go up and, you know, start having a casual conversation, you know, with these different types of entrepreneurs or, you know, quote unquote, big names? Yeah. Um, to be honest, like, and I'm like being really honest, like actually when I started ad stage, I had some connections, but I really didn't have that many. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and maybe let's say I had like 10 and you may say, oh, 10 sounds like a lot. It's really not. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you have to go through hundreds before someone's going to give you a check. I think someone's, I think we got at least 30 no's in a row before someone said yes to it at ad stage. Yeah. So like, that's another thing you have to learn too is set your expectations. Like it is not an easy journey. When you see things written up in TechCrunch, that's after months and months and months of work you know, hundreds of no's. Mm -hmm. It is not glamorous. It is not easy. Like, be patient, yeah. you know? So that's one thing is just be patient about it. The second thing is think about these investors. They think about the fact that they hear a thousand pitches a day, right? So how do you make yourself somewhat unique? The approach that I take is when I go up to investors, I don't actually ask them for their money. I don't pressure them. I think some, some various accelerators and things like that try to say, hey, try to get them to write you a check right then and there. To me, that's silly because who the hell is going to do that? Yeah. Like, it's their money. Like, I, I would want them to sleep on it. I don't want them to invest because they're infatuated with us in the honeymoon period. Mm -hmm. I want them to be infatuated with us in general because they think it's a sound business or a sound idea. Yeah. So I approach every single conversation, whether it's with a hire, whether it's with an investor or with a customer, as just a normal conversation. This might sound cliche or cheesy, but honestly, that's what I did. And I think, you know, I even did crazy things. Like, when I was at AOL, when I was on the M&A side, I actually snuck backstage at TechCrunch to go meet, you know, this is the very first TechCrunch disrupt in New York, mm -hmm. to meet uh, Troy Carter, who was at that time Lady Gaga's manager. Mm -hmm. I just straight up, you know, broke the rules, snuck backstage and mm -hmm. met the guy, right? Um, so you can also just, do, that's what you hear about like a lot of scrappy folks. I think yep. some people even pitch like Dave McCourt when he's taking a piss like in a urinal. I would recommend <laughs> letting the guy, you know, yeah. relieve himself, you know, appropriately, but you know, whatever. I mean, there's different things you can do. Mm -hmm. It's just, they say it, right? It's a very cliche term, the hustle. Mm -hmm. It's very true though. Like yep. it's perseverance, it's hustle. It's just not being scared, being a little bit more extroverted than you typically would be, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Totally agree with that. So, you know what? I actually want to backtrack a little bit. So, you know, sure. at age 17, when, when Yahoo hired you, I mean, that's, that's, that can't be like a normal thing. So what did they say that they liked about you? Because I, I want to kind of get that, you know, that, that, that I guess that, that trait, you know, yeah. so to speak. Um, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, like actually a really good question. Maybe one day now um, I'll go back and ask some of my first managers why they did. Uh -huh. um, so they weren't actually supposed to hire me from what I was told by HR because I was under 18. Mm -hmm. It's actually a really funny story. I was working on this team called the Mobile One Search Team, yeah. which was the mobile search team for Yahoo back then. And by the way, 
Yahoo was dominating in mobile. Mm-hmm. This is back in 07 before Android and iOS were even out. Yahoo was like leading the charge. They're beating Google, Google in mobile search as well. Mm-hmm. And so I was on this really cool team. HR, like six months into the job, pulls me aside and says, Sahil, we have two red flags next to your name. They said, well, what's that? And they said, well, the first is you're under 18 and we're supposed to hire you. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's your fault. Like, you guys had a background check. So yeah. what are we going to do? And they said, verbatim, they said, we're going to work through some idiosyncrasies in the system to keep you. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, okay, great. So what's the second problem? And they said, well, unfortunately, we have to take you off the OneSearch team. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, next week we're releasing adult content and you're underage. <laughs> and so, which is crazy, right? Like, I was like, oh, can I get a parent's permission slip? They said no. Um, so that was kind of fun. Uh, to be honest, I, I did, I'd worked previously to that, actually. I worked in the professional video game industry. Mm-hmm. So for a game called Counter-Strike, um, I was working, you know, for a German company called Mouseports, um, and they were like a professional video game organization, mm-hmm. and they would fly me around the U.S., and I'd do sponsorship marketing. So I had a little bit of work experience from that. But honestly, the job they hired me for was a super, like, I, I don't mean any disrespect, but it was a super remedial job, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was called Black Box QA. Yeah. So I was doing like straight up device testing. I was sitting on a phone all day testing the client manually, mm-hmm. which, come on, I mean, anyone can really do. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were at the point where they just needed more people on board. So it was probably just an opportunistic moment to bring someone on board who's okay doing very like low level tasks. Mm-hmm. And then what I did was I taught my, you know, I took it upon myself to learn more stuff, mm-hmm. right? So my second or third week there, I taught myself Perl. And this way I can move into more of like a platform engineering, like more test automation role. So slightly more, well, not very sexy, but still like slightly more fun. Mm-hmm. And then my fifth or sixth week there, I pitched a new business idea, actually. It was a really bad pitch. It was 50 slides long. It took an hour and a half to get through. I didn't know how to do a pitch. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was, you know, lights were on and it was like a really exciting time at Yahoo. So I went for it. Mm-hmm. And um, that catapulted me into doing my own projects and things like that. And mm-hmm. um, maybe they like that. I don't know. I think that might be the trait right there, and maybe you can repeat this maybe when we talk in the future, but I, yeah. I think it's just because you go for it. And, and like you said, it's the hustle, right? The people that go for it are the guys that do it. Yeah. Um, the people that complain about, oh, you know, it's not just hard work, it's luck. You know, those are the people that that don't get it, I think. Um, so anyway, why don't we talk a little bit about um, you know, the first 100 customers. How did you acquire your first 100 customers at AdStage? Um, yeah, so, so at the very beginning... Uh, we actually would do, you know, we would do your, your standard cold outbound emails. So we realized that, you know, for online marketers, you have to have money. So we went to Crunchbase, and when people were announced that they were raising money, we're like, okay, these people have money, so they're probably going to experiment with advertising. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those are like, you know, you, you guys talk about this stuff a lot, like growth hacking or whatever. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I'm a big fan of the term necessarily, but, but what it is, which is just like scrappy methods that are not scalable, yep, yep. but can test things really quickly, mm-hmm. right? So like, it's not scalable to send 100 cold outbounds a day, mm-hmm. right? But it gives you a lot of valuable information. Are you yeah. targeting the right audience? You know, is the messaging resonating well with folks? And so initially, to get the first couple customers, we would, you know, we sent a bunch of cold outbound emails, mm-hmm. and we would get them to sign up. We'd go do demos with them. It was very much at a loss, right? Um, and now the way that we're actually acquiring, and, you know, press helped. So we had press, you know, kind of early on. We did well at launch which we weren't expecting to do. And that obviously got us you know, a couple hundred, if not almost up to a thousand signups, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Um, and from there though, those are not sustainable techniques, right? So what we are, you know, at AdStage, what we've realized is that online advertising historically has not been focused so much around education. Like a lot of these ad tech tools don't really care about education because a lot of them are agency models where mm-hmm. they, and this is old school agencies, like you guys are doing new stuff where you're actually educating people, but like mm-hmm. old school agencies almost took advantage of your ignorance, yep. right? And so, and that's, and that's awful. But for us, like, we want to teach people about this crazy world called online advertising or paid marketing or what, you know, what have you. And so what we do is we create a lot of educational content. And we mm-hmm. don't talk about ad stage at all. Like if you go to our blog, we hardly talk about ad stage. 
So we have a newsletter that goes out every Tuesday morning. You probably get it called mm-hmm. This Week in Ad Tech. And it's just a bunch of advertising news, how-tos, and guides. Yeah, which a lot of people actually like. It goes up to like 7,000 folks, and it has a 28% open rate week over mm-hmm. week for the last like seven months. That's wow. insane, right? And so we do that. We write a lot of content. And that's actually today how we get all of our signups is through content marketing and through organic channels. So we run like really tiny brand campaigns um, so that when people type in ad stage into Google, they'll always see an ad for us just to capture that missed impression potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, little things here and there, but the early days was totally like not scalable practices, but total experimentation. And again, you know, we all get hit up by these random companies with these really crappy sales emails. Mm -hmm. So locking, like taking down examples of those and doing something different, making sure that we're not doing the same thing Mm -hmm. helps you stand out a little bit. So better calls to action, you know, email optimization is actually super important. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like what's the right headline? What's the right subject? What's the right first line? Adding a line of you know, something that's not, don't templatize it, right? Maybe add a line of something that's unique to their business. Like, hey, I went to Single Grain, and by the way, I loved your about page. There was something on it that resonated well with me. It'll just create this affinity towards in the relationship that you then mm-hmm. want to dive into, right? This is typical sales stuff. Got it. And so you mentioned you have 7,000 7, people on the list. Um, I mean, in, in terms of like number of users per month, I mean, how, much, how, much, how many users are you getting a month from, from your content marketing efforts right now? Um, so we get about like 60 to 70 per week. So that's okay. what. Um, and so that's how much we're getting about per month. And to be honest, like at the moment, like we can't even, you know, we're in beta and mm-hmm. our sis- we're trying to scale everything. And so we can't even bring on all 6,000 yet. Like we want to, we're trying to get to that point, but I suspect mm-hmm. we'll get there really soon. Um, but you know, it's a, it's an awesome effort right now. And then I think that fundamentally a lot of companies love to brag that they don't have any sales, mm-hmm. which I think is a silly thing to brag about because yep. if you're going to build a true business, a real business, you need everybody. Yep. It's not just engineers. It's not just account managers. It's not just, you know, just sales. But you do need good salespeople are phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? They're amazing to your business. Yep. So it's not about getting scared to hire salespeople, business people. Mm-hmm. It's just the right time. You need to know when the right time is. You know, I, I think you bring up an extra, a really interesting point because I think it's the younger people, and I'm not no disrespect to older people, but I, I mean, it's <laughs> it's just that they're open to everything, right? You know, the people that say, the people that are online marketers are just like, oh, you know, TV, advertising, billboards, whatever, that stuff doesn't work. Or, you know, I, oh, we don't need to do sales or whatever. Or, you know, the startups are like, yeah, we have zero sales. I mean, you know, okay, we suck at marketing. But yeah, I, I think it's really important to analyze everything because my background before was like, oh, I'm not going to do this other stuff. But I think once you start testing it, once you start getting into the the quote unquote, you know, growth hacker mindset, I, I hate saying growth hacker, but it truly yeah. is um, you know, Sean Ellis said, you know, it's about the growth mindset, not so much the growth being a growth hacker. I think once right. you have that mindset, you know, you're in a really good position to to you know make a lot more, um, bring in a lot more users, bring in a lot more revenue overall. And you know, the next point is, I, I think about you know the the marketer that you guys have on the team. His name's um, Sam, right? Yep. Sam is 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 super talented, and then you have all these other talented engineers as well. So, how do you go about recruiting all this great talent? Yeah. So that's a good question, and it's something that we struggle with all the time because. No one wakes up, you know, in the morning and saying, "Hey, I want to work on ads," mm-hmm. right? So, like, so getting really good engineers in particular is actually really tough. Mm-hmm. But the way that we've done that is interesting. So, recruiting Sam—I mean, Sam's phenomenal. You guys know Sam's work. If you go to our blog, that's all Sam's work. Mm-hmm. He's awesome, and it was actually a really interesting transition for Sam too because he was like your hardcore big company guy. <clears throat> you know, he worked at a company previously. He was, you know, he was managing their ad spend of 400k a month or so. So a lot of ad spend. So he knew this stuff really, really well. Mm-hmm. And he was hired at Google because, frankly, he knew Google better than people at Google AdWords. Like Google AdWords better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was hired there as like kind of UI UX consultant and also worked with engineering teams and whatnot. And he saw our launch presentation. Mm-hmm. So actually, Sam kind of came to us, not necessarily for a job, but then mm-hmm. I kind of 
turned it on. You know, it was he came to us just to learn about our product. That was his job at Google. Yeah. And I was like, well, hey, you know, are you interested in a job? <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of more. That was very opportunistic. So we've hired really good people due to opportunity. Or you know, press does help. Mm-hmm. Press kind of adds validity to your business. Um, having a good marketing site. These things. People want to work for like the other thing we've also noticed is I don't know I don't know what you consider a product but we like to say it's really pretty it is really it's very attractive aesthetically pleasing which again like in advertising technology has not been the case mm-hmm. but frankly like a lot of people do like working on nice looking stuff things that they can be proud of mm-hmm. right and so that helps on the business side I think that people do fundamentally know that if we can create the one stop shop for online advertising across all these fragmented channels it's going to become a very big business so on the business side they can buy into that right. On the engineering side, what we've done is, you know, my, my, my last company was a technical infrastructure company. Mm-hmm. We were building a, an application development framework. So I had yeah. to learn very quickly um, how to hire developers. Mm-hmm. And the way that you do that is, you know, there's different types of developers in this world. There's certainly more than two. But the two that I talk about is there's one where they're, you know, they're focused on their day job. It's like a means to an end. And they go home and they do all their side projects. Like, you know, the day job is just kind of there. It's their eight to five and they go home. Then there's the other engineer who, like, they don't even care necessarily about the product, which, you know, for better or for worse, I mean, it depends on the person, mm-hmm. but they really just care about becoming a really, really good engineer, mm-hmm. right? And that means, like, to some extent, using more progressive technologies or using, or at least having the capacity to use new technologies, having a nice technical stack. Like, you know, for example, our engineers, PHP is not a bad language by any means, but mm-hmm. our guys, like, hate PHP, for example, right? They love using Ruby on Rails. They love using, um, you know, they love using Cassandra for a database. They like using progressive front-end frameworks like Ember or Backbone or Angular. And so attracting engineers by having a really nice engineering stack is mm-hmm. very important because... And that, I think, fundamentally attracts the better engineers, too. Like, you want engineers who love their trade, right? There's other engineers who don't necessarily love their trade. Like I said, it's more of a means to an end. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, at least, we need engineers who absolutely love the fact that they've been gifted to be engineers, you know? And so appealing to that sense is very important. And the way you do that is you give them... You have good engineering practices. So we have really good engineering processes in place. It's not just scatter gather and you do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. We have other really smart engineers on the team. So the very the, the hard hire was the first one. Mm-hmm. But once you have really brilliant engineers, when people come and meet with them, they're like, wow, I'm going to work with people. Our most important criteria is of should we keep someone on the team or you know, when we hire people, sorry, let me get the light on, is mm-hmm. are we inspired by one another, right? So it sounds cheesy. Again, I know, but this is really important. Like, are you working with people who inspire you? Mm-hmm. And that's our, you know, that's kind of our focus. So when engineers come in, like we just had an engineer come in literally before this interview mm-hmm. and he got to meet with everybody on the team and, you know, that really helps their mindset because they know that they're in good hands. They mm-hmm. know that they're, they also know they're not the smartest person in the room, so mm-hmm. they're going to learn more stuff. The, so, sorry, that was a huge brain dump, but it's a lot, you know, we're learning more and there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. So let's say, okay, you get the first engineer. I mean, are you typically, are you still sitting in on all the other interviews with your other engineers or are you just having the, the you know, your CTO, so to speak, or your co-founder handle it? Yeah, I do the first interview mm-hmm. uh, for a couple reasons. One, culture is an absolute deal breaker. So if I do the cultural interview, I ask, you know, I'm relatively techie. I'm not an engineer by any means, mm-hmm. um, but I can definitely hold my own and I can speak through the stack, which I think is also very important when you're talking to engineers. Because mm-hmm. they, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, if you're talking to good engineers, they care about the stack. Mm-hmm. They care about how you're solving tough engineering problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll have the first meeting. The other reason why I do that too is I don't want to, unfortunately, you know, we don't have a lot of resources. So mm-hmm. I don't want to waste a lot of my engineers' time. If we find that someone's an amazing engineer, but he has an awful, awful, or he or she has an awful um, attitude or cultural fit, it's not going to work anyway, mm-hmm. right? 
So the first thing is, let's test the culture. Then we have an um, online technical test. So we send out a coding test that we've created um, and see how they do on that. And that's basically like a weeder. So at this point, we still haven't had to use necessarily any of our engineers' time. And then finally, they'll, you know, they'll review that with you know, my, my co-founder, CTO, Jason. He'll have an initial talk with them. And then we'll have them come in and meet with the team. So our process is, it actually can be very quick. It can be very quick. There's a lot of steps, but it can be very, very quick. We've, from start to finish, we've actually hired a senior engineer in three days and had him move over from Florida. Wow. So, like, um, so it, it can happen very, very quickly, but we do want him to get, you know, him or her to get experience to the entire flow. And like I said, even for invest, like investors with engineers, we don't want you to get infatuated with the honeymoon period and that's why you join us. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's a long road ahead of us. So we don't want you to come in and decide in one day. We want you to go home. We want you to sleep on it for a day, for three days, for five days, and just see if you wake up every day thinking about ad stage. Mm-hmm. And if you do, then maybe we should pursue it. Got it. It sounds like you kind of have you have the you know what I call the the no asshole rule. So we have that you know at Single Grain too. It's where yeah. it's like you know if someone constantly puts their needs above everyone else's, you know they just, they just gotta go. It sounds like that's kind of what yeah. you have in place, and I think that that's really good. Um, okay, so let's talk about this. Okay, I mean. Age twenty three. Going back to your age again, mm-hmm. how does someone go about you know learning you know knowing what you know, especially like you know learning le- learning to talk a language or you know talk talk about the stack with other engineers? How do people just know as much as you do? Um, so by the way, so you're very kind. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that I know that much. I think that I'm you know I'm far from it, but I do appreciate it. Um, to get to the point where you know I've gathered the knowledge that I have, it, it's it's personal interest, right? So. I know that um, I'm not an engineer today, so I don't want to be "quote unquote" snowed by my engineers, right? Mm-hmm. I also don't want to, you know, it's it's not my job to interfere with their practices, but at the same time, I can bring some helpful recommendations from from the process level, right, um, into the, into the engineering team. But if I do that without having any knowledge of the engineering side, I can piss people off very quickly, mm-hmm. right? Like I could say, "Hey, you need to finish this feature in two days." They'll be like, "What the fuck?" Like you don't even know how this feature gets put together. How could you even say that? Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? So trust me, I made these mistakes. And then I literally had engineers say, wow, you're an idiot, Sahil. And yeah. so that's what made me feel so you know, inferior, and it yeah. pushed me to go read about stuff. Yeah. So oftentimes I'll go read about you know, Angular or, 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 or Ember.js, even if I don't, honestly, even if I don't understand half of what I'm reading. <laughs> it's imp- that shows me, though, that I don't know. That's also very important to realize. Mm-hmm. If I don't understand it, then I sure as hell shouldn't be talking about it, right? So... The other thing I do, and I don't know if my engineers like this or they hate this, but I ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. so um, to better understand this stuff. And it's a short-term, it's a short-term loss, right? Because they have to spend time explaining it to me. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, it's a long-term gain because then I won't, you know, then I'll be able to manage appropriately, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that it's very important. Like one thing that I have learned in life, a lot of people make fun of me that I took philosophy mm-hmm. in college, um, and I and I just think that they they haven't caught on yet. I think that they're actually the silly ones. Um, but I think <laughs> what it does teach you to do um, is ask the right questions, and when you learn how to ask the right questions, you almost become like an extortionist. Mm-hmm. It's so valuable, right? And so that's what I do very often. Like I'll ask, well, okay, how does this work? I won't just say, hey, go do this. I'll say, hey, this is a feature that we're really looking to build. What do you think? Um, you know, how long do you think it'll take? Mm-hmm. And then if they say, hey, it's going to take three months, I'm like, whoa, 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 like I thought it could take like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't say, hey, do it in two weeks. I say, mm-hmm. okay, well, why is it going to take three months? Do you want to explain it to me, mm-hmm. right? And that also means I have to hire people who are, who are awesome and they're they're okay with explaining stuff. They're not too cocky or they're not too headstrong where they're gonna, you know, get pissed off having to explain to some guy who doesn't know anything, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it just means take a genuine interest. There's a lot of stuff out there on the internet. There's a lot of people who are actually very helpful people that want to teach you things. Mm-hmm. And you just have to ask the right questions to learn it. 
Yep, and that, that, it's totally as as simple as that. I mean, obviously yeah. harder to do, but it really is just that way. And, and no, I mean, yeah. still, I mean, I, I totally, you know, I totally think your your the knowledge at your age is really impressive. Um, so, two questions here. Um, two final questions. So, must read book for entrepreneurs. Interesting. So I so this is going to be interesting because I um, while I love books, uh, I actually try not to read too many startup books. Um, I read a lot of philosophy. So one of my favorite books is actually a book called On Bullshit. Um, I highly recommend it. It basically tells, you know, it's like from a philosophical standpoint. It's by Harry G. Frankfurt. And it tells you how to essentially, like, it just analyzes bullshit yeah. like that we have every day in our life. And I think that that's kind of interesting because that's a very important trait. Yeah. Um, so I recommend that. I, I don't like, you know, I've read Four Steps to Epiphany and I've read excerpts of, you know, Crossing a Chasm and all that kind of stuff. But um, I actually have written a blog. I don't write very much, um, mm-hmm. but I do have three blog posts I've written in my life. And one of them is about startup reads. I think that they're phenomenal, mm-hmm. but they can be very dangerous yep. uh, because what happens is they're all written in, ret- in retrospect mm-hmm. and in hindsight you have 2020 vision, right? So it's, and, but oftentimes people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. So then they read it, they think like, okay, when I hit a situation that's similar, I need to act in the very same way. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, every single situation, every single second that we live is different than the previous second, right? Mm-hmm. So it's never to say that you should act in the exact same way. The ripples will be different. Right, mm-hmm. um, like the butterfly, like it will be very different depending on however you, you know, whatever action you take. So, mm-hmm. for one person, if action A was very bad, for you, action A in the same situation actually may end up very good for you. Mm-hmm. Right. So, anyways, that's like my that's kind of my two cents on it. But I think that you know, I, I guess on bullshit would be my recommendation. I think it actually would be very helpful for anyone, not just startup people. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, you know, whenever I ask this question, sometimes I'll get different books and, you know, nonfiction books, uh, fiction books, whatever. Um, no, and I, I think this is, I think this is probably going to be one of the better recommendations because I typically get a lot of the same recommendations over and yep. over. So, total, you know, thanks for that. I, I think I'm just going to order it right after this. Um, yeah. Final question. So what's one productivity hack you use? Interesting. Um, that's actually hard because so, okay, one thing that I've learned, I, I heard this on stage somewhere and I tried it out and it works. I don't necessarily stick to it all the time, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, just because a lot of things can come up. Um, but I like to theme my days. Um, so, like, for me, especially as CEO, you know, and I'm still very involved in product, I'm still, still very much involved in design and hiring and all these kind of, like, larger macro tasks, mm-hmm. I like to theme my days. Yep. So, um, you know, one day I'll focus, like, if I know that I'm doing, I have to do five major things, mm-hmm. I'll, for my next week, I'll literally make one day, like, the hiring day. One day is a day to do one-on-ones with people. One day is a day to do miscellaneous tasks. One day maybe it's for product and design. And then the other day it's for, um, you know, engineering chat or whatever, right? And so this way, like, I keep myself very focused on those days. And I don't jump between a thousand different tasks, um, which can, at the end of the day, if you do that, you don't make a lot of progress Mm -hmm. and you feel like crap, right? So um, theming my days, I think, was uh, very – I think theming in general, by the way, just as a – sorry for a part – like a, a small tangent. Mm-hmm. I think theming is very important in general. Like we've learned even on the engineering side. Um, I learned this actually from – we have a lot of investors from Yammer. So David Sachs, uh, mm-hmm. CEO Yammer, Jim Patterson, he was the chief product officer, and then actually one of their engineers, Bob Ramica. And Bob actually told us that they theme their sprints. So whenever you're doing like a technical sprint, which is like, you know, it's like agile methodologies, right? Like a two-week sprint. um, They'll theme it like, okay, this sprint we want to focus on customer retention. So we're going to prioritize bugs or features that are focused around customer retention, right? Or this week we want to focus on, you know, um, content marketing and building tools for our content guys or something like that, right? So Mm -hmm. theming sprints is important. And I think theming everything you do is a good way to organize um, your productivity. Yeah. And, you know... 
as as a CEO of a company, as, as a CEO of a company as well. You know, I learned this from Jack Dorsey when he started theming his days. I think when he was working on Square and Twitter, yeah, you know, he kind of you know themed them out that way. I was like, I'll never need a theme out theme out you know my days, right? Um, I started doing this like four four weeks ago, and it's been really liberating. So you know, highly recommend it to anyone that feels like they're out of control because I mean, you know, like Sahil said, if you try to do too many things at once, you're all just going to get these little micro things done that really don't add up to any impact. So totally yeah. agree with that. Um, so Sahil, you know, thanks so much for joining us. You know, we wanted to definitely have you on the show again sometime soon, but, um, you know, yeah. we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Really See appreciate you. it.